Hi there. Thanks for listening to the Curiosity for Better Learning podcast, where we talk with educators, researchers, and thought leaders about top of mind topics in the K-12 education space. We hope you take away evidence-backed insights from cutting-edge research, practical ideas you can try in the classroom today, and questions that inspire your own exploration to learn more, awakening your professional curiosity. My name is Carrie Budinger. I'm one of the co-hosts for McRell's Curiosity Podcast. For listeners who may not know McRell, we are a research-based education nonprofit. We use evidence from what really works in schools to help increase educator expertise, student achievement, and school success. I've been working at McRell for three years. I'm a former high school teacher, and now I support business development through sales and marketing. Dallas, why don't you introduce yourself? Thanks, Carrie. And I'm Dallas Duncan. I've formerly worked in the children's and young adult publishing space. And about two and a half years ago, I joined up with McCrell to help lead our marketing and content development efforts. Uh, we've got another great topic for you today where we'll be talking about networked improvement communities or NICs for short. What's the science behind them? What do they look like in action? How do they tackle problems of practice? We'll cover all that and more in today's exciting episode, Networked Improvement Communities, Building Towards Better Student Outcomes. But before we get into the discussion, Ben and Chelsea, I'll give you the floor now to introduce yourselves. All right. Well, thank you, Dallas. I'll, uh, I'll start. Um, my name is Ben Cronkright. Um, I serve as the Senior Manager of Researcher Practitioner Partnerships with McCrell. Uh, before joining McCrell, I uh, was a school principal, um, as well as a classroom teacher um, out in the K-12 space. Um, and so look to uh, every chance I get, continue to learn alongside uh, those folks in practice as much as possible. So I'll hand it over to Chelsea. Aloha my kako. My name is Chelsea Nicole Kealekini. I was born and raised in Hilo, Hawaii. I'm a native Hawaiian and a proud public school graduate. I've always had a passion for educational environments that help Native Hawaiian students thrive. And that kind of led me to where I am today at Kamehameha Schools organization. Our founder was really witnessing a decline in the Native Hawaiian population from about 800,000 people to merely 40,000 in the late 1880s. And she recognized that education was critical to survival for our people. So she bequeathed all of the land she owned to create an educational charitable trust focused on improving Native Hawaiian health and well-being. And today, Kamehameha Schools is the largest private landowner in Hawaii and the largest endowment in the nation. So the di division I work for now is Keala Iwikuomo'o within the Kamehameha Schools organization. And I work primarily to support the 17 Hawaiian-focused charter schools across our state. These are public schools that were created um, with the express purpose of educational sovereignty. And their programming is grounded in Hawaiian language and culture with the effort to kind of rewrite the negative consequences of colonialism and celebrate the ancestor, the brilliance of our ancestors. So thank you for the opportunity to talk story today, and I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Awesome. So I, I think it's a great time now to get into our icebreakers for today. Uh, so Ben, I'll start with you, but Chelsea, I'm going to ask you the same question. Um, ben, who was your favorite teacher in school and why? Yeah, so um, I guess first that comes to mind is uh, Mr. Roberts, who was a high school 
teacher of mine. Um, I had the opportunity to to learn from him in the classroom as well as the baseball field. And I think the the big thing for me in terms of why is um, his ability to empower, um, to build empowerment in students. Um, you know, I think that's a word we toss around a lot, but uh, he truly put it into action. And uh, I learned a lot uh, from him that I continue to reflect on to this day. So, yeah. And then for curiosity's sake, you said he was the baseball, he was a baseball coach and also a teacher. Yes. Was yeah. he a social yeah. studies teacher? Yeah. Because it usually happens. A, it seems <laughs> to be the trend. Yeah. 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 Um, he was, yeah, taught uh, multiple subjects here. He was actually, I know he, he was one of those that uh, spent time in social studies and business classes as well as physical education. So, um, yeah, just a great teacher for sure. All right, Chelsea, uh, same question to you. Who was your favorite teacher in school and uh, why? You know, that's a great question. And luckily, I have no shortage in my educational experience of inspirational teachers. But I heard my mother's voice in my mind, always seeing that she was my first teacher. And really the reason why... Um, I consider her one of my favorite teachers is my mom was a non-traditional college student. So when I completed my bachelor's degree, my mom completed her master's degree and we actually graduated together. Uh, so my entire childhood was a unique type of early college preparation program happening where my mom dragged my sister and I around to her college courses. Um, she really viewed any type of homework we were doing as college prep. Um, so I'm just really thankful for that experience. And I guess the strength that she displayed as a first generation and non-traditional student to pursue her education. So that's something that I'll always be um, very, very thankful for. I love that perspective on the question. That's awesome. And so Chelsea, actually, I'll start my icebreaker with you, which I love to ask all of our guests. What's got you curious these days? You know, I recently went home to Hilo. I live on Oahu to visit my mother and we started looking through my grandmother's old cookbooks and then started that led us down a rabbit hole, a fun rabbit hole of looking at um, even historical cookbooks and how they're organized differently. And some of the cookbooks have more of a narrative and story behind the recipes that are being um, created or documented. I've always loved cooking. My grandmother is definitely the matriarch of our family. And it was just really nice because she passed away in 2020 to look through not only her recipe books that she treasured, but also her recipe cards with her handwriting on it. So my mom and I just spent a lot of time going through all of those and sorting them and talking about family traditions and memories. So um, that's something that we're kind of it's our own inquiry study, I guess, that we're immersed in currently. That sounds fun and delicious, so I'm a fan. Ben, the same question for you. What's got you curious these days? Yeah, a uh, great question and loaded too. I mean, I think about uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things out there that have me curious. Um, but just having the opportunity to learn alongside of, of teachers and leaders and schools. Um, you know, the, the list is pretty big, but I think the one that I continue to be interested in is just this, this idea of um, continuous innovation work, right? So working in that space of 
continually innovating these ideas that uh, teachers and principals and school teams come up with, um, and specifically how um, the systems are designed in a way to um, either help those ideas be successful, or in some ways, there's systems set up to create barriers um, that in some ways can hold, you know, students and communities back. And so, you know, I think it's a it's a space I continue to be curious about because I think it's a space we uh, that the opportunities to to work within are endless, right? Um, there, there's always a need there, and so um, yeah, it's it's always has me curious. I feel like a topic like that, you'll never stop being curious because there'll be more and more to think about <laughs> as you. Yeah, it's an infinite process, that's for sure. Yeah. Before jumping too far into the crux of the episode, uh, Ben, can you give us a bit of context on the purpose of Networked Improved Communities uh, and specifically their structure, organization, and connections to Indigenous frameworks for conducting critical action research? Sure, sure. Yeah, so I think the, the place I'd start is really zooming in on, um, on one of the words from Networked Improvement Communities itself, and that is communities. Um, and I, I zoom in on that because it truly is a structure um, for organizing around continuous improvement or innovation work that values uh, community and the voices of community. Um, it's that whole idea of you know, you hear the phrase, it takes a village, um, and, and Nick certainly, that's where they start, right, is, is getting into communities and, and really looking to bring multiple perspectives to the table around um, how to problem solve, how to generate um, and build on solutions that seem to be working uh, within communities. And I, I share that and at the same time, kind of double back on, on the context of the particular hui that or Nick that we are um, going to be talking about today, because it is um, certainly a context in which there have been um, some research agendas that have come into Indigenous communities uh, with a predetermined goal or a predetermined purpose. Um, and Nick's um, Kind of buck that trend. They they come in and in, into indigenous communities um, with the idea of really pressing into that concept of learning in community. Um, and so, with that, I I think I would uh, just highlight there's there's really four key ingredients or characteristics I would say that are a part of networked improvement communities. The first one is. Um, being able to develop a clear and focused goal or aim statement. Um, and if you think about that particular ingredient, it can't happen without having the valued voice of many folks within the community. Um, and so that includes an education setting, includes students, teachers, parents, um, all of which have that valued voice in, in this NIC process. The other thing is the, the second um, ingredient or second characteristic is uh, it's guided by a share, a deep and shared understanding of a problem of practice. Um, and then for that matter, guided by a deep understanding of the system that's producing that problem of practice. And then a working theory of action or renewal that the NIC wants to use to take it from a current state 
to a desired state. So just thinking about those first two characteristics, that doesn't happen unless voices in the community are elevated um, to do just that. So um, the third one is, and I think this really sets it apart from any other collaboration model out there in our field of education is the third ingredient is it's disciplined by this rigor of improvement science, um, which sets it apart from, for example, professional learning communities don't necessarily have that ingredient. And, and the, because it's disciplined by that rigor of improvement science, it's, um, it's coordinated in a way that accelerates the development, the testing, and the refinement of the programs or practices um, in a way so that when they spread and scale into multiple classrooms or multiple schools, it's done in a way where it's reliable. It, it happens in a reliable way. Um, so yeah, that, that gives kind of the, the way they're structured and um, for that matter, the, the context piece as well. And I feel like that foundation and background is really pivotal to have before we jump into the next question, which is looking at real life examples. So thank you for being concise, but thorough at the same time. I know that can't be easy. <laughs> thank you, Carrie. And so Chelsea, uh, being a member of an emerging NIC on INA-based education, we'd love to learn more about the background of its formation, the common goal it's working towards, and what you're learning along the way. Sure. Um, first of all, I just want to thank Ben again for that great explanation. And it's been a nice partnership working with McCrell and Rell because of their understanding of Indigenous communities and research. Um, it's also been great having leaders in my organization that created grant opportunities that really embrace Indigenous methodologies, some of which um, Ben reviewed a few moments ago. Um, and I just want to give a quick shout out to my leaders, um, Kehawabad and Wai Ale Ale Sarsona. So when we're thinking about a lot of the um, characteristics of network improvement communities that Ben discussed, and then the work that a lot of our schools were engaged in prior to this project, um, I kind of wanted to just share a really short story from one of the participating schools. Um, we went to see their senior capstone project presentations last year, and one of the seniors who was presenting to a large community audience was sharing that the focus of his research project was a uh, Native Hawaiian Pahu, which is a large drum, maybe about three to four feet high. And he worked with a community member to learn this traditional technique of making this drum. And during his presentation, he shared um, that the community member who mentored him talked to him about how he only learned this technique of drum making very late in his life. However, it's managed to keep him very focused and centered during the most difficult times of his life. And they, each time while they were working and building the drum together, they had this discussion about the bigger lessons learned while creating these cultural artifacts, these techniques that have been passed down hundreds of years. And um, that level of understanding and this community partner and the student understanding that this connection to our past, our history, our ancestors can help carry him through difficult times in the future is something that wouldn't be able to easily be measured on a standardized assessment. Um, so the schools that we're working with, all five of them, Kanui Kapono, Sikhs, Malamohonua, Kamaile, and Kekula O. Samuel M. Kamakau, 
all have been working for years on developing assessments such as the one I mentioned that not only um, measure academic work, the student I talked about earlier wrote a 10-page research paper, created a PowerPoint presentation, and created a cultural artifact that's still relevant today with the Pahu drum. Um, but how could they create really rigorous assessments and rubrics that measure this deeper type of learning? Um, so that, that's been a really important, I guess, philosophical alignment amongst the five schools participating and really led to a common problem of practice that they wanted to pursue together. Um, so the schools that we work with, they, they don't see academics as a, a means to an end. Um, they actually view it as a vehicle for students to um, be able to learn more about how they can contribute to bigger problems or solutions within communities. So instead of students only wanting to um, earn a good grade to get a higher GPA, um, you, you hear a lot of students in our schools mention, um, I have goals of becoming an anesthesiologist because I learned about Native Hawaiian traditional plants and how they can alleviate pain. And that's something that I want to do in a profession in my future instead of I want to become a physician um, to have a comfortable salary. Uh, so, so these are, are a few of some of the, I guess, as I mentioned, philosophical alignments amongst the five schools and really the network improvement communities and indigenous methodologies are providing the structure for the schools to come together and first of all, build off of the great things they've already been engaged in for several years, but also collaboratively figure out how can they submit these assessments in key grade levels to an external review committee via Stanford to validate and uh, I guess, acknowledge that the teacher and school developed assessments they are creating are just as rigorous as SBAC assessments that are mandated across the nation or in some states still using SATs for, for college admit admissions. Um, so that's just kind of a, a little glimpse. Um, you did mention INA-based learning also. That is another foundational aspect of the NIC schools that are working together and you know, a lot of the time we hear a lot about place-based education, which is very important and valuable. However, with Aina or land-based education, really one of the critical differences is that students are building a relationship with land, thinking about uh, land significance in the past, how it can be used presently to um, and developing a call to action to solve problems in the future or promote solutions in the future. So it's also really different from place-based education in that the goal is for students and teachers sometimes to really um, reestablish their cultural identity through the relationship with land. So you'll notice in all of the assessments of the participating schools, instead of just being academic assessments that might be a research paper, um, they also include a cultural artifact component and they also include a performance assessment component. So those three factors um, are really important and distinguish the assessments that the schools are, are developing from other more um, conventional or traditional educational systems. That sounds like really exciting work, 
as you were talking, I was reflecting on my own experiences in school, and I feel that if they had more assessments that had a bit wider of a scope or resonated at a different level, my engagement would have increased. And so it's really wonderful to hear that all of this is happening, especially across multiple schools, because the students who are participating, I would imagine, are getting very rich experiences, which is so cool to say about school, because at least for me, it wasn't always like that. I had those teachers who put it into action, and I had some of those sprinkled throughout my K through 12 but uh, it sounds like this is the really large focus and I am so excited to learn about it. So thank you for sharing all of that. That was really, really amazing. Yeah, I especially like the uh, philosophical approach of saying, it's like students are like being a student and then like also hearing from students now, like one of the common questions that comes up is like, why are we learning this again? Or when are we going to use this? And I liked how you mentioned that uh, these projects not only allow students to contribute right now, but it's also giving them takeaways that they can use for the rest of their lives. And I think the other thing that's great about it, when you talk to the teachers from the schools and also when we get a chance to interact with the kids, um, they almost don't realize that they're learning because they're so engaged in what they're doing. So I, I mentioned the 12th grade example from our school, Kanoi Kapono, but at another school, um, Kekula O Samuel and Kamakao, they're a Hawaiian language immersion school. Their kindergarten teacher every morning takes the kids on a walk throughout the campus to engage in kilo or keen observation making. So students in one previous years, um, there were a lot of Ohia lehua blossoms blooming on trees more than any other year usual. So as this teacher, Kalau Nuola, took her students around the campus, they actually ended up learning how to count beyond 50, even though that's not the expectation for kindergarten, because the kids were so engaged in the number of flower blossoms that were blooming and also the different colors, shades, locations, and just their thinking and discussions about that. So I think that's another great example of how, as I mentioned earlier, kids almost don't realize they're learning, even though teachers are being very, very um, intentional about it. Um, so it's just great to see kids that are engaged about something that's relevant and culturally connected also. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, so Ben, for educators and school leaders who have identified problems of practice and think that a NIC could provide the type of structure and organization that they'll need, what do those next steps look like? You kind of described the uh, step process of one through four, but before we get there, uh, how do you get that process started? Yeah, it's a great point, Dallas, in terms of, um, you know, you, the first one, as I mentioned, being able to develop a, a common aim or a goal, um, you know, that doesn't happen, obviously, without, first of all, making sure you have the right people at the table to, to have or to develop a common aim or goal that is meaningful um, that can have ownership for the entire, you know, what's what's to come of your NIC membership, right? And so Chelsea talked about um, in the case of of the Hui in Hawaii, there's been that that um, I guess that context where there were four of the five schools that were already working collaboratively, right? And so there was some conditions set there. 
um, to bring together some teams that were, were used to working together. But we know that, you know, in some cases, there are NICs formed where schools aren't accustomed to working with other school teams or organizations. And so the first step is really kind of forming an initiation team that can go out and be champions for the work and bring together the right people to the table to develop a goal that um, is meaningful to the to the NIC itself. And I say that because I think sometimes what we see in other learning communities in the K-12 spaces, they'll pull a goal from a school improvement plan that's about proficiency. Um, and that's not always the goal that the NICs try to set up. They're looking for, as you heard from Chelsea's explanation, um, you know, goals that are meaningful to students, teachers, families, and school leaders or system level leaders. So that takes some time to get there and it takes the right perspectives to get there. I find it interesting, you mentioned the champion team. And so it truly is a collaborative process from the inception all the way through. And I think that there's a lot of power in that, which is great to hear. Well, we really appreciate you both diving into this. I feel like we could have talked about it for several episodes instead of just this one. If there are listeners who are curious to learn more and want to talk to either of you, how can they contact you? Ben, why don't you go first? Yes. Yeah, so um, the best way will be through email. Um, and that email, my email will be available with the resources that follow this podcast. Thank you, Ben. And Chelsea, what is the best way to contact you? I'm going to diddle Ben, and I'm also on Twitter. My handle is my first and last name, Chelsea Keeney. So that's another option, too. Awesome. All right, perfect. Uh, Chelsea, Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. And as they mentioned, we'll be listing their contact information uh, as in the resources section for this podcast, as well as some additional free related resources around uh, today's topic around NICs. And you can get all of that at mccrell.org slash podcasts.